Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Jeremy Kuzmaroff, who has taught at numerous colleges across the United States and is the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including The Russians Are Coming Again, The First Cold War as Tragedy, The Second as Farce with John Marciano and the new book that we will be discussing and which I highly recommend. It is called Obama's Unending Wars, Fronting the Foreign Policy of the Permanent Warfare State. Jeremy Kuzmaroff, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, it's great to be here. Why write about Obama now when he's finished and gone? It didn't, didn't President Obama teach us to only look forward? Well, I think uh, firstly, uh, there was an opportunity to write a kind of comprehensive evaluation. Uh, since his presidency was over, we could look back now in hindsight. And also we could draw lessons from that presidency. Uh, and we can see some limitations of two-party system and, and perhaps be a bit skeptical about the current field of Democratic Party candidates. You know, if they're not addressing foreign policy issues concretely, or if they're planning on just continuing this uh, endless warfare state. Uh, so I, th I think it you know, provides lessons for current day politics, uh, and that's one of the reasons. And also I felt that you know, there were some you know, preliminary evaluations by uh, historians of Obama's presidency that I found to be completely inadequate, including by some very good historians like Alfred McCoy, who was claiming that Obama was this great uh, you know, uh, geostrategist, and I found that that was not the case at all, that uh, you know, Obama perpetuated the permanent warfare state and uh, you know, uh, contributed to the American decline because of the excessive military spending. And also many of these military interventions are very misguided uh, and have led to uh, um, animus towards the United States all around the world. I had always thought of Obama a little bit like uh, Woodrow Wilson in terms of somebody who is, is really an extreme militarist, but is understood by the world to be something of a peace visionary. You really develop the, this comparison in, in the early part of, of your book. Can you talk about uh, the Woodrow Wilson tradition in, in Obama? Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the lessons we can learn from his presidency, to be weary of this kind of messianic rhetoric. And that's what we see from Obama and from Wilson, this kind of cloaking military inter intervention in this liberal humanitarian veneer. And I think both were very effective in doing so uh, and, and in using this kind of rhetoric that, you know, America has this destiny to go about and spread democracy and spread liberty uh, and to cloak interventions under humanitarian guise. You know, for Obama, it was all about stopping genocide and halting atrocities. And we have this mission to do that. And it really masks the empire that the United States is and that American foreign policy interventions really follow the model of traditional empires and that they're designed really to uh, extract uh, economic benefits for the United States and kind of bend countries to the American will, that the rhetoric presents it in a way uh, that it appears to be humanitarian. And I think both Wilson and Obama were able to pull it off and large sectors of the American public kind of bought into this idea uh, of the you know, American mission uh, to spread goodwill. Whereas other leaders like Bush or Trump kind of expose themselves and, you know, are, they're more crude and crass. Uh, and I think they're much easier to mobilize against. 
because they lack that sophistication in packaging these interventions uh, under this humanitarian veneer. Obama, as you discuss in in the book, Obama's Unending Wars, was really uh, a, a very successful public relations product, wasn't he? I think so. And I think there's a whole industry behind him. And I think it started with the packaging of his own family history, which appears to be very distorted. Uh, you know, I think Obama's appeal was that he was this multicultural guy uh, who was very international in this age of globalization with the African father and the mother who was, you know, a hippie uh, do-gooder who went out uh, uh, to, you know, spread development in Indonesia. But really, if you look into it, his mother was working for all these American government agencies that were propping up the right-wing Suharto government that was massacring leftists in Indonesia. And his mother was really very much a part of that. And there's questions about the story Obama tells uh, uh, that really are questionable. And it's even there is a question. I mean, there was a whole birther controversy, and that was, I think, false. But there are questions whether uh, uh, Obama Sr. was actually his father, given that he left, had nothing to do basically with Obama throughout his life. And there's some cryptic references in Obama's writings. Uh, that his father may have actually been an African-American man named Bart Frank Marshall Davis, and that this story was created in part uh, uh, because his grandfather, Stanley Armour Dunham, uh, was uh, surveilling uh, this fellow Frank Marshall Davis uh, and could have lost his security clearance uh, because of uh, this illicit affair between Obama's mother. So uh, there are question marks uh, about the veracity of that story. But I think the broader point I make is that Obama's family was connected to the American empire, uh, and he kind of covered this up. And it's part of this mar- you know, false marketing of Obama as this humanitarian, uh, multicultural guy, when really he was, from the beginning, serving the interests of American power. He also had uh, some early and consistent funders and, and supporters uh, who were not exactly... Uh, peacenik community organizers, were they? Absolutely not. And that's a comparison I make with Woodrow Wilson, where they had this grandiose rhetoric. But if you look at who's bankrolling their uh, rise to power, in Wilson's case, one of his major backers was Cleveland Dodge, who uh, was uh, owner of the Dodge Phelps uh, mining dynasty. And he was a major war profiteer who was uh, driving Wilson to intervene in World War One. And in Obama's case, uh, one of his major uh, financiers from the beginning of his career was the Crown family, uh, who own a major stake in General Dynamics, which is one of the world's leading arms merchants. And they profited greatly. Obama's approach was to kind of move war more into the shadows and promote, you know, the drone strikes and more covert forms of warfare. And the Crown family profited greatly off that because of their uh, support for um, uh, various drone technologies, and you know, General Dynamics, their stocks went way up, and they they made a fortune under Obama. The list of of wars and military actions uh, that Obama oversaw is is pretty endless. Uh, although you you seem to cover virtually all of it in the book, um, I don't know how much we can we can get to, but but under under Obama, military spending uh, and military presence and base construction and troop deployment, murders by missiles, including from drones, uh, all of these things went up dramatically, right? 
Yeah, and I think Obama was able to get away with more. You know, people were roused because of the style of President Bush. Uh, there were mass protests against the Iraq war, but since Obama moved war, more into the shadows, uh, he was able to get away with a lot more and very quietly escalate military spending, escalate the base spending, uh, and there was very limited protest against all that. Indeed, uh, what, I guess one of the one of the wars that that some people do associate with Obama, and rightly so, uh, is the the destruction of of Libya several years ago. Now, can you can you talk about that as a as a noble humanitarian philanthropic war? Yeah, I compare that to World War One and Wilson because. You know, Wilson framed it that the United States had to halt uh, a German autocracy. You know, framed as kind of a conflict between American democracy versus German autocracy, and Germany was its great aggressor. And there was a huge propaganda campaign to instill a strong anti-German sentiment that kind of rallied the U.S. public to support U.S. intervention in World War One. And we kind of saw something very similar with Libya, this demonization of Muammar Gaddafi uh, and the uh, exaggeration of his atrocities. For instance, it was claimed that he was giving his soldiers Viagra to carry out rapes. And actually, human rights groups never found many instances of rapes. Hillary Clinton herself later admitted that the uh, number of atrocities Gaddafi's troops committed in putting down the Arab Spring protest was about 10 times greater uh, that they were claiming it was 10 times greater than it actually was. And actually, Gaddafi's family said that the protests were very violent from the outset, and Gaddafi had actually tried to uh, make an order for the soldiers not to fire on any protesters. But the, uh, the police and army officers were confronted with very violent protesters, many of whom were Islamic jihadists, because the uprising in Libya broke out in Benghazi, which is a stronghold for Islamic fundamentalists. Uh, so there was just a, a lot of propaganda and exaggeration being used to mobilize the public to support this intervention, uh, and that can be compared with World War One. And in both cases, there were you know, disastrous outcomes. In, in the case of Libya, the United States wasn't affected because of the use of new technology. So, you know, very, uh, very no U.S. soldiers were killed. So there wasn't the same kind of backlash that Wilson faced because 100,000 American soldiers died in World War One. The consequences for Libya were cataclysmic. I mean, the country is now a failed state. Thousands of people were killed. Islamic jihadists have taken over the country. You know, Libya was the uh, strongest economy in all of Africa under Gaddafi, and now it's it's just a ruined, failed state where slavery has come come back. So the consequences are terrible, uh, especially for Libyans. Just like the consequence of U.S. intervention in World War One was terrible. And and it's a really dangerous model for future uh, so-called liberal presidents, right? Where you uh, use the, the responsibility to protect the humanitarian excuse, the 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 you you gin up a, a false threat of of a massacre, and then you get the United Nations to support some sort of action to prevent that fictional massacre and proceed with uh, a regime change, overthrow, destruction of a country, even though that part wasn't in the UN authorization, right? This, this could be repeated any number of times, couldn't it? 
Absolutely. And I think even in the last presidential debate, you know, they asked about does the United States have this responsibility to protect against genocide or massacres? And a lot of the candidates were saying yes. I think they, they framed it to Beto O'Rourke, if I remember correctly. He said, yes, we do. So and I think Biden said that, you know, this is the model uh, of an intervention for the way we go forward or something like that after Libya. So I think this is the model. Yeah, it's a very sophisticated public relations apparatus uh, that really plays on certain liberal sentimentality and unfortunately an ignorance of the American public, including liberal sectors, because the media often doesn't cover these countries in any nuanced way. For instance, like in the Libya case, you know, there are many accomplices. I mean, our media was just demonizing Gaddafi for years, going back to the 1980s. But if you talk to Africans, because I spent some time in Africa, or if you follow international media, uh, there was a much, you know, mixed record. I mean, Gaddafi did have a dark side, but he had done a lot of good for the country. Uh, he had used the oil revenues to develop its economy, have a very advanced health care system. I think many Libyans, a very good education system. Libyans were even paid to study abroad and come back to the country. Uh, he developed an amazing water system. Uh, and so there's so many positive things going on in Libya that we weren't exposed to. And that uh, enables this kind of... Uh, operation to be successful. We are speaking with Jeremy Kuzmarov uh, about his new book, which I highly recommend, Obama's Unending Wars, Fronting the Foreign Policy of the Permanent Warfare State. Jeremy, when Obama ran for president the first time, uh, he generally campaigned, uh, although the details were pretty vague, on ending the war on Iraq immediately. Uh, and escalating the war on Afghanistan. And it seems people who favored peace heard the first half of that, and people who favored wars heard the second half of that, and everybody was pleased. How did he, how did he perform on, on each of those once in office? Well, yeah, and I think Obama had a gift that people kind of read into him what they wanted to believe. So people on the left end of the spectrum were more progressive or anti-war, somehow thought he was one of them, uh, you know, because of certain statements he made. I mean, I think he was very gifted and, you know, maybe he would make certain statements to one audience and then other statements to another audience. Uh, but, I mean, if you look at both of those cases, uh, I mean, Iraq, he actually, what I found in my research was that he was lobbying, as the Bush administration had negotiated, that the United States troops had to withdraw at a certain date. But Obama was actually pushing for the U.S. troops to stay. Uh, finally, he acquiesced to them leaving, but he left a, a residual force. I mean, it's not really withdrawal when you leave a massive embassy with a huge number of private military contractors who are training the Iraqi army and police. Uh, and then when the, uh, you know, the U.S. was supporting Nouri al-Maliki, who was basically considered to be a Shia Saddam, I mean, the problem under Saddam Hussein was that the Sunni were dominating over the Shia, but now it was just the reverse, and the Shia were oppressing the Sunni, and that led to rebellions against uh, al-Maliki's government, and then the rise of ISIS, who consisted of some former Saddamist generals, some disaffected Sunnis, as well as other religious extremists, and then the U.S. redeployed uh, soldiers. And it was an ugly intervention. I mean, now more is coming out about the destruction of Mosul and the uh, horrible humanitarian costs of that. Uh, so 
there was no real debate about whether the U.S. should be sending troops back in or whether there was alternatives. And then when you look at Afghanistan, uh, I mean, it was just a horror show. I mean, uh, Obama, you know, sent a huge number of troops. Yeah, it was, it was kind of an act of mesmerism because he said, oh, we're sending the troops, but we're setting a date for withdrawal. So and maybe that convinced some anti-war people that Obama was really in anti-war camp, but he was sending the troops so that they would, they would be withdrawn. But they're still there today. And I mean, Afghanistan has just evolved into another Vietnam-type quagmire. Uh, and, you know, the Taliban have only become stronger uh, as a result of the U.S. military puts there. And you know, countless civilians have been killed. Uh, it's just been a, a nightmare uh, and, and should have been ended many, many years ago. As I recall, Jeremy uh, Kuzmarov on the, the Iraq question, uh, Obama was, was trying to negotiate with the Iraqis to keep even more troops beyond the supposed uh, ending of that war, uh, like his ending of the war in Afghanistan that didn't end it. And, and uh, what happened was that Chelsea Manning, uh, then Bradley Manning, uh, released all kinds of information uh, that influenced the Iraqi parliament uh, to refuse to give immunity to U.S. troops for any crimes they might commit. And Obama wouldn't, wouldn't leave troops there without uh, that immunity, or so he said at the time. He later sent troops back in uh, with, with the ISIS justification. But uh, wasn't it the case that he was that he was trying to keep even more troops there beyond the deadline that that Bush uh, that Bush had agreed to? Yeah, uh, that's right. And as a senator, he had voted for war appropriation. You know, everybody uh, cited this speech he gave in two thousand two uh, when he was still a state senator uh, opposing the war. So they thought he was this great anti-war figure. Even in that speech, he had said, you know, I don't oppose all wars, only dumb wars. But then by the time he was in the Senate, he was voting to renew war appropriations. And then, as you suggest, he was uh, lobbying to try and keep U.S. soldiers. So he was not much of a pacifist at all uh, in any way, including in that war that he was trying to extend. Uh, and there was, there was no debate at all, uh, you know, when he decided to, to resend troops to fight ISIS. Uh, and, you know, there was an abuse of executive authority because there was lack of uh, consultation with Congress, uh, including, the, and that was a problem also with the Libya wars, that he violated the War Powers Act and the U.S. Constitution. And Dennis Kucinich called him out on that, was calling for his impeachment, as was Ron Paul. And actually, as I found, uh, Obama employed uh, phone tapping on, on Kucinich because he was uh, calling Obama out for violating the War Powers Act. So, I mean, another thing we see in Obama is a dangerous abuse of executive power. I mean, everybody's talking about that rightfully with Trump and some of the abuses he's carried out. But I think the, the public should be aware that this problem of executive usurpation of power is it's not just the Republicans that abuse executive power or uh, Donald Trump, who has done so. The bipartisan problem uh, in U.S. politics uh, where the uh, president basically assumes the status of a king and is waging war without consulting or a vote, a proper vote uh, of sanction in Congress. And that's a violation of the U.S. Constitution and the War Powers Act. And Dennis Kucinich had called Obama out on that violation and Obama wiretapped his phone, which is also illegal. Yeah, it is indeed. Uh, you know, I... I 
Uh, I appreciate the efforts that we're always hearing from uh, from anti-war folks in in Washington about the need for Congress uh, to vote uh, on wars because it could conceivably uh, prevent a war and and may have prevented Obama from from bombing every inch of Syria uh, in 2013. Uh, but I do like to note that. Uh, Congress doesn't have any power to launch a war legally either, uh, and that these wars violate the UN Charter and the Kellogg-Briand Pact, and there isn't some waiver for the United States Congress in the UN Charter. Uh, am, am, I, am I off base on that? No, I think you're right about that. And also, I mean, the Congress isn't always necessarily very progressive. You know, many of the congressmen are uh, beholden to the same military uh, interests that a bankroll executive branch uh, uh, figures like Obama. So, you know, and we saw in the Iraq case, uh, you know, Congress was sanctioning the war. So it can serve as a check. And it did, yeah, in the case of Syria, it did uh, serve as a check. So, Well, this book, uh, Obama's Unending Wars, uh, covers uh, vastly more wars than most people in the U.S. public can keep track of, even Congress members can keep track of, uh, or than we have time to talk about on this show. But there are sections about Syria, about the drone wars, about Pakistan, Somalia, Yemen, about nuclear policy, about Russia and the new Cold War, about the expansion uh, into Asia and Africa, about Latin America and coups in Honduras and in Ukraine. Uh, uh, But I want to ask uh, in particular, and people need to pick up the book and read it to get the full story, uh, but when Obama ran for re-election for his second term, uh, it, it wasn't just that he was uh, campaigning as more of a peace president than he would be. Uh, it was that he was campaigning as a war president and people were refusing to see it. Uh, I mean, he, he went to the New York Times and said, write an article about how great I am at, at murdering people with drones and how I go through a list of men, women, and children and pick out the targets it, it, because he wanted to be seen that way. Is, is that right? Yeah, I, I think that's a uh, you know, kind of disturbing reflection on the American political culture uh, that kind of harks back almost to the you know, era of uh, Andrew Jackson uh, or somebody like that because, yeah, I, I think uh, he was worried, you know, his staff was worried that he had this image maybe as somebody who was weak or soft. Uh, so yeah, he planted this article in the New York Times uh, in which he you know, presented himself as, as Zeus the Avenger. And we know about this from WikiLeaks uh, documents uh, that kind of enable us to see the backstory, where his team yeah, basically was trying to create this image of Obama as a comic book assassin. Uh, you know, who slays America's enemies and is the hero in that way. Uh, and that's, I think, a disturbing reflection on U.S. popular culture uh, that political candidates have to be packaged in this way. Uh, it is extremely disturbing. Uh, and it's even more disturbing to me, or it's equally disturbing to me, that uh, as far as I've seen in reports that are few and far between, Uh, Donald Trump has continued this drone murder program uh, and even escalated it 
uh, and we hear much less about it. Uh, is that because there hasn't been a, a New York Times profile about Trump the drone murderer, or, or have people just decided to accept it now? What is what's going on? Um, well, I, I think there's two points. Yeah, one, I think Obama was very dangerous in that he kind of normalized pathological behavior. Like I use the example when he made a joke you know, at the foreign correspondence dinner, he made a joke about his daughter, you know, the Jonas Brothers, I think a celebrity singer said something about his daughters or, and he said, oh, you better watch out, I'll send predator drones after you, as if this was some kind of joke. And I, I think he kind of normalized this, like, and people just accept that this is, you know, the president can just, you know, kill whoever he wants uh, with these robotic machines. Uh, and, you know, Obama was very suave, very media savvy guy. So I think he pulled it off. And I think the other factor is that uh, the U.S. military and Pentagon has developed such sophisticated technologies that they can wage war uh, without the involvement of most of the public. So it doesn't necessarily affect the daily lives of the average American. So they just kind of tune out to what's going on. And very quietly, yeah, Trump is expanding what Obama did. You know, he's expanding. Uh, I know he expanded the number of uh, bombing strikes on Somalia and drone strikes there. And I think he also took off. Uh, under Obama, I think there at least had to be some reports about the casualties by the drones. And now that's no longer precondition. So there's no, the government is not providing any data anymore, I don't believe. And, and Obama, I think, successfully uh, created the misunderstanding that these things were, were precise and that if he was picking names off a list, those were the people he was murdering, uh, whereas uh, all the information we have from, from the other end of, of these drone strikes uh, has been that uh, they had virtually no idea uh, in most cases who they were killing, much less who was, who was nearby uh, the chosen target and being killed as well. Uh, and and uh, so I, I think even though Trump is president now, uh, don't people still have this have this fantasy about surgical precision targeting? Absolutely. And I think it's part of maybe this culture of techno fetish uh, in the United States where uh, we're so mesmerized by new technologies, you know, including computer technologies. And we have this a great faith in technology, and it's often unwarranted. You know, there's so many negative consequences of technology, really, in society. In this case, yeah, the technology is very imprecise. Uh, one case I mentioned in the book is, you know, because there were a lot of friendly fire deaths, and one of the father, there was a Texas uh, soldier who was killed, and his father was shown the video uh, of the drone feed, and like he said, he could barely make out anything. It was like a tiny blob, uh, which was actually his son. So, I mean, that exemplifies how it's really not precise at all. I mean, it's really grainy images that the drone operators are looking at. And then the intelligence, and that's setting aside the fact that the U.S. often has very poor intelligence uh, because, uh, you know, the U.S. doesn't relate well to the culture many uh, U.S. Uh, soldiers are not trained in the proper languages, and you know they do short tours of duty. It takes years to learn various languages, uh, localized languages. So the intelligence is often wrong uh, in the first place, and then the the technology is you know the the images are very grainy. So this is a formula for many many 
mistakes or wrongful killings, which is the pattern we've seen in the drone war. Uh, very well said. Uh, and this book is very well written and deeply researched. Uh, it is called Obama's Unending Wars, Fronting the Foreign Policy of the Permanent Warfare State uh, by Jeremy Kuzmarov, who has been our guest. Jeremy, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. It's my pleasure. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.